Hello, and welcome to the Canyons Are Calling podcast. I'm Cheryl Jocelyn, your host for the show. I've been working on my website, thecanyonsarecalling.com, and I have added uh, some merchandise. I got the 16-ounce pub glasses in. They are awesome. So you can go there and order those as well as some stickers. I also have partnered with Teespring to provide quality clothing for everybody. They ship directly to you and provide an option of sizes and colors and different styles. So you can go to um, their store, the canyons-r-calling.creator-spring.com. I will have a link to that in the shop part on my website also on the canyonsarecalling.com. So you can go there and order some awesome t-shirts and hoodies and I've got kids onesies. I've got all sorts of stuff on there and I'm adding to that kind of weekly. So check back there often. Um, They'll make some awesome holiday gifts. So keep that in mind. I also have partnered with Amazon as an associate there. So I added a page for everybody's favorite Canyon snacks and I'm going to keep adding Canyon snacks and a link to um, purchase those on Amazon. If you already are shopping on Amazon, I'll just get a little kickback to support the show if you purchase through my link that way. So that would be awesome if you'd like to support the show with what you're already purchasing. Um, I also got an awesome Apple review. The J. Lee family said it's a great listen if you like adventure in canyons. I recently did a canyoneering trip in Zion. It was an incredible experience. Returning home, I searched for information on canyoneering. This podcast has been a wealth of information, great stories, and a good reminder to get some technical training. Thanks for putting it out. Recommend it to anyone who loves adventure and canyons. Thank you so much for your five-star review, Jay Lee family. I really appreciate it. Those kind of reviews and the emails that I get from people encouraging me are really what keeps the show going. So thanks a lot. So today my interview is with Ira Lewis about canyoning in the Colorado San Juan Mountains. Ira currently lives with his family in Colorado. He has been actively canyoning and canyoneering for over 15 years. He has participated in or led numerous first descents in the San Gabriels in California in the early days of Death Valley, also in the Pacific Northwest, in Colorado, in the United States, as well as many others abroad. Through connections in the International Canyoneering Rendezvous, known as RIC, he helped bring the event to URA in 2015. He recently authored a guidebook titled Canyoning in the Colorado San Juan Mountains, which added 40 canyons to the previous URA guidebook. So here's my interview with Ira. Enjoy. All right, so I am here with Ira Lewis. Ira, could you tell us just a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into the outdoors? Yeah, sure. I grew up in the Midwest, in Michigan specifically, and my dad had had a couple of you know big backpacking trips that he had told me about for quite a while, and we started doing that when I was 11. My first backpack was this big external frame pack, and we weighed them before the trip and went off for an overnight. I think I carried 60 pounds at age 11. And his pack was 85. So this is this was the first trip out where we realized we needed to um, radically shift the things that we thought we needed to bring as technology had advanced um, from when he had gone like 20 years prior. Um, and that was pretty much, you know, he got me into a lot of these things. We went to Mammoth Cave, which was a long drive from where we were, and to the Upper Peninsula. I went to Isle Royale a couple of times. Um, with with him and then with friends later in high school and got into a little bit of climbing. Michigan's not really known for it, but there's a, about a 60 foot ledge made out of sandstone in Lansing and um, and then transferred in college and moved west. And that kind of really began this like big explosion of having at least familiarity with the outdoors, but then adding all of the rope sports. Awesome. So moving out west, where did you initially move out west for college? I landed in Boulder, Colorado, which is, you know, a epicenter of all things exciting and um, rocks and uh, sport draws and dynamic ropes and all of these things. I met a bunch of people that are involved, were involved in a lot of that. And while I lived in Colorado, I 
did a lot of the Colorado things, ski hut trips in the winter, hiking club trips, was kind of pretty much blown away and very excited to have been at this part, this half of the country. And, um, but then moved to California as one of my you know, second or third jobs out of school. And that was the addition of you know, more scuba diving. I discovered canyoning, a lot more rock climbing, trad climbing. Um, it's, it was a prime location um, close to Southern California where a lot of that stuff was abundantly available. I should also awesome. mention in Michigan, I um, I did get enough into ascending and rappelling that I played around in the 80 foot elm trees in my backyard. I used to use a, um, you know, throw a rope up into the next branches and then ascend up to that. I used to watch the fireworks you could see for miles away from the very top of one of those trees um, and make zip lines. And it was definitely, I think I was looking for something more vertical than what I had around me. That's incredible. So even at a young age, you were exploring with ropes and yep. vertical heights. Yeah. My dad made me, he says, okay, the very first purchase you're going to make is this, those big old CMI rescue descenders and a huge um, steel carabiner and this like tactical harness that could fit anybody, I think. And he's like, if you're going to make this order, you have to at least order a book on rappelling and read the whole thing. So I did it cover to cover, read a whole bunch from, you know, one of the mainstay books from the, at that point, and um, at least had that skill set when I moved out West. Did he have any repelling knowledge or was he learning no, as well? He was learning with me. That's awesome. That's an awesome dad. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So now we're into California. We get into canyoning. Yeah. Um, I had read about canyoning or canyoneering. I think it was specifically one of those backpacker magazine subscriptions I had in the nineties. And it was a terrifying story from my woodlands backpacking perspective. Right, two guys with big packs, which I'm picturing to be somewhere close to that 60 pound pack that I had in a slot canyon. And they told a story of a flash flood. And my picture of a slot canyon at that point was that it was about shoulder width and they said it was 100 feet deep. So I pictured a shoulder width, 100 foot deep, legitimate slot. None of the erosion that we see in all of Utah, but like it was exactly shoulder width all the way to the top. And then you could just jump jump over the top. And they had said, it made some sort of reference in that article that they had to escape the flash flood and quickly climb with all of their packs to the top and get out. And so I thought that that meant you had to go straight vertically up a hundred feet. And I can picture them like flopping over onto this flat surface as the whole channel filled with water. And that's totally not at all what it is. But at the time I remember thinking, oh, canyoneering sounds very, like very, very dangerous and way past my skill level and all of these things. Um, but then many years later, I wound up living in California, back in Colorado for a brief thing, picked up a pamphlet at Neptune Mountaineering, one of the local gear stores. And um, it was for the American Canyoneering Association. This is 2004. Turns out that local Los Angeles group was getting together right about that same time frame, um, a couple of weeks after that for their kind of like their big once a year get together at um, Christopher Brennan's house, who was very active in that area. And I had time to meet up and do Lower Eaton Canyon as my first canyon. I was totally hooked every single bit. I've heard other people on your podcast say, it is so amazing to be in an environment that constantly changes. Every, like, what's around the next corner? And then you look back, and I think Rich Carlson has told me since, make sure you always look back in the canyon. There's twice as much canyon. Um, okay. and Right. There's you're, you're there. You might as well. You might as well put in the, you know, don't forget to, to see the other view. And like, it's just this amazing environment. And we had a really good group of people who became a lot of really good friends for uh, California and international traveling for the next decade. It was just kind of one of those like turning points where it was like that day totally took me in a direction that has impacted my life for until now. Yep. I feel like the canyons do that to all of us. Mm -hmm. For sure. Suck you in. <laughs> when I was a guide, I used to warn people before they would even get in the car. I was like, this is addicting. Like, it will change your life. Just be warned. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, so how did you get into the San Juan specifically? Um, so my my desire for exploring took me on a loop through Seattle. I did a couple canyons up there for the few years that I lived there. I did a lot more climbing. Um, I at that point actually had met um i met charlie oliver through some other friends 
on a trip in the Northwest. It was uh, Gorge Creek, I believe. And Charlie says, hey, later on this year, we're, uh, we're going to have some other folks in your way if you wanted to come join. And that was the beginning uh, in 2008 for me of a year off. And I made that an anchor on that trip. And at that point also met Daniel Clearwater from New Zealand and Joe Bugden from Australia and proceeded to do some more traveling with them in both New Zealand and with Joe in France and Australia and met, you know, for that one week, you know, if there's that first turning point, this was for sure the next turning point of, oh, I'm actually, I've, I've unhinged myself and I can probably land anywhere. I think I'm really kind of interested in coming back to Colorado and having already been introduced to those initial classic Uray Canyons and understanding that, uh, as Charlie put it, there were more layers to the onion, more things to be discovered in this part of the state that I hadn't spent much time in. Um, when I moved back in 2009, that became kind of a weekend destination and exploration continued and I've been doing it since. Very awesome. What were the canyons in New Zealand and France like? Uh, there's a, I like, and I've had a chance to do some international canyons um, in a lot of different places. The fact that you can actually get like really great toboggans, these slides that go from pool into pool. And the, the French have done such an amazing job equipping these just like awesome adult natural water parks that we can play in. And so some of these canyons, you know, you'd see like 20 people on a guided trip going to do this very amazing pay to play. You park and walk sometimes like 15 minutes, do a canyon for two hours and 10 minutes later, you're back at the car. I mean, it can be like, I've heard one of the European friends of ours say, the canyons you have in America sound a lot like hiking because we have a lot more work to put in to get there. Um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of things for different techniques. I learned a lot more about how high I'm willing to jump. I did my first toboggan face first. I'm like, you know, these, some of these things that like I, I was never, I, I think you have initial um, reservations for, um, but then you kind of start to learn that this is the way that it's done there. And I let myself get shown a bunch of, a bunch of things that it was really, really helpful as I've continued on with different canyons and different spaces, including my own backyard. Awesome. That sounds fun. <laughs> okay. Putting that higher on my list of places to go. <laughs> yeah. The French, um, the French Pyrenees were great. The, um, and that part that borders between, um, the hot Alps between France and Italy were pretty great. But I mean, okay. there's a lot of good rock. I think we all become much better geologists in this sport because we start to recognize like which rocks and which weather patterns form which types of canyons. And mm -hmm. the the rock that they have in those areas is a reason why canyoning really kind of started in that region and became is so far ahead of us. And it's hard for them to find first descents if they're locals in, in the EU um, or Switzerland um, because it's, they've been doing it for a lot longer. It's been pretty wild to be able to be introduced to where we were at in the US and then take that a bit more international and then come back with a skill set where you start to look at things in a different way and think, wow, there's there's a lot of potential. I think Rich Rudeau said it in your other podcast. He says, there are a lot of canyons in the world. There's so many and do this. it's amazing to have this skill set that allows us to really get into them and explore them. Yeah, for sure, definitely. So back to San Juan's and um, the book you just updated. Yeah. So Michael Dolan and Charlie Oliver started working in the San Juan's, Uray specifically, um, in 2002. Um, and I should probably back up and, and touch on the geology of this area. Everybody's talked about the Colorado Plateau. This is not to be confused with the state boundaries of the state of Colorado, but this is the old seabed that is all sedimentary sand rock that starts, you know, this grand staircase that starts in Zion and comes all the way up to the Cutler sandstone layer. There might be higher layers, but the layer I've known and been in has been Cutler in Uray. But it would be buried if it wasn't for a bunch of glacial activity in the volcanic San Juan's mountain range. That's the southwest corner of Colorado. So Colorado is part of the Rocky Mountains. There's two, two giant plates came together and have given us all of this elevation that we now get to play in and people who are not from here get to suck wind at. But um, the, the San Juans, which is the Durango, Uray, Pagosa Springs area, is all kind of generally volcanic in origin and has had a lot more snow because of its elevation and a lot more glacial activity. And that is carved down into now 
flowing sandstone canyons in this red color layer. And it all really kind of is the epicenter around Uray, Colorado. Mike and Charlie um, had spotted this, saw the potential, and that netted Mike's first book in um, 2008, 2000, the 2008 time period. Um, I think it was when I had first met him and got there, his book was about to be released. And that was 10 Canyons, the, lo the local things that all kind of flow into, into town. Um, and then he did a second edition uh, with 15 Canyons, which included some in Silverton and some more updates. And and then some years passed. Um, I did an update. Uh, Tom had reached out to me to update the book. I know that his stock of Mike's second edition was running low. And I helped participate in that, updated some anchors and some bolts. And, you know, areas get, you know, more and more... Um, infrastructure and trade routes and we you know installed some bolts to re to reduce erosion in different places where natural anchors had originally been set and then mike had said you know here's my manuscript if you want it you've been doing all of this work and at that point i'd been slowly exploring or fast quickly exploring um a whole lot of the canyons you know in the next valley over in the next town down and um that let's see the book came out last year in 2020 there was a big push in 2018 where uh, my wife and I did a whole lot of the like the remaining like what, what's your hit list if we were going to do this book what would that be, and then then began this big writing effort, starting with Mike's manuscript, doing a tremendous amount of updates and taking it from like 195 pages to 540, and adding 40 additional canyons to Mike's 15. It's a pretty awesome book. There's a Thank lot of you. beautiful pictures in there as well. A lot of great information. Yeah, and one of the things, um, so RopeWiki came along in this whole time period. So we have this amazing internationally based database of all of our Canyon beta, and I've been pretty active updating that. Um, but right now you can, I would say if you're, if you're looking to go to the area, use the RopeWiki entry to be able to identify if there's any new information, if somebody else, I mean, this is user supported. So if someone else potentially has different opinions. Otherwise, I think it's a really good tool in conjunction with the book. The book provides canyon profile, similar to a lot of the way that the European canyons and New Zealand canyons um, will, will depict a side picture of all of the drops and the obstacles and the things to watch out for in the canyon, um, rope lengths, um, rappel heights, that sort of thing. So that's in the book in all of the printed pages for every single canyon. But RopeWiki is great because you also can download the GPS track. So I um as when the book came out, I synced RopeWiki and the book, and everything that's on the RopeWiki site matches the information in the book. And I expect that they diverge, but at least I know that as many repels as I know of and have GPS coordinates for are marked, and the um, all that information is publicly available for anybody who wants to go and anybody who might need to be a part of a rescue party. That's awesome that you share with Search and Rescue as well. Yeah. Um, so what is your favorite canyon in the San Juan area? I I started off, um, I think I have a handful. Uh, Corbett always comes back. I, I went and did it initially on that very first trip. We, um, we did it the day after a massive flash flood, which was kind of wild to walk out of the bottom of this and know that the there's an air raid siren that goes off in the town of Uray if a flash flood is imminent. And it went off, we were in a different canyon and we got out. And this big rain cell came over and it went through Corbett and it produced like over the knee thick mud at the bottom. It took pine trees that were 30 feet tall and about a foot off the ground, rotated them 90 degrees and stripped them of all bark and all branches and piled up rocks that were bigger than me in stacks of three and four against the few trees that were there. Like these are some really powerful you know, storm activities. So we had a great day as my first experience in that canyon. It is, it cuts deep in that Cutler layer. There's some amazing hallways that are there. Um, I know that people have said that the hike is brutal. If you keep doing it, it does get better. Um, but that's true of all these canyons. You start at about 8,500 feet or like 2,600 meters, and you go up to 10,000 feet as a lot of your entrances are um, 3,000 meters. And 
it uh, it's it, it kind of remains to me to be a, a special spot. Um, I didn't do it for a handful of years with other distractions, and then and then got back into it. And it's been it's been a good one to, I would say, probably ranks highest. Um, but there's a lot of classics that are in that area. Cascade drops with um, I think now like 17 to 20 rappels in that canyon, with this big penultimate one at the end that is the huge. Uh, 250 footer that drops right into town. Um, the fact that all of these waterfalls and drainages end in town is is just fantastic because you can you go in you know you've you your pay to play is to earn your effort first, but when you finish, you're close to a car and 10 minutes away from the rest of town, which is um, not always the case for a lot of these other things that are buried further in the wilderness. But it is nice. Colorado has a, a mountain town atmosphere that is craft brew centric and um, a fun spot to be post Canyon. Definitely a good place to acclimate as well. Because for me, I get there and the first time I went, I was just like, we're going to have so much fun. And I had a headache for three days. So the next year I was like, I'm going to just hike for a couple of days. <laughs> and planned on spending a longer amount of time. But I am already at like 5,000 feet, so I don't know why the extra 4,000 totally hits me, but it does. Yeah, I, I mean, these are all the altitude advices. The, the more fitness you have going into it, the easier it will be. Hydrate all the time. Um, you know, I think you get to learn your body and what your body can do with this. Some people have a harder time with altitude than others. Um, you can help yourself out with having a cleaner diet and maybe not drinking the night before. Um, and, you know, for you know, those who are there. And even when I would get to the point where it was every single weekend for a period of time, I could do it a lot easier than I can do it today, where it hasn't been every single weekend for me. Um, I still mentally kind of push myself and suffer through it. But sometimes those packs are big. You've had some other folks on your on your podcast that talk about quantity of ropes and exploring is never a lightweight lever, never a lightweight activity. So um, that plus altitude and some of these other canyons have been up to 12,000 feet, which is, um, or one I did recently, two saddles at 13, I start to move a little slower. Yeah, what is it like to canyon at the alpine level? Um, you feel kind of ridiculous hauling your wetsuit to high elevation because you don't really need it for that moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I think um, for the most part, those are, um, I guess there are a couple waterfalls at like 12.3 in the San Juans. It is a high range. Um, there are, it, I think once you start going downhill and you can actually get your wetsuit on and your harness on, you can get some of that weight off your back. I have been in a couple places where my, um, I've noticed that it wasn't, wasn't maybe as in sync from a fitness standpoint. And, and I move slower until I actually can note on the map that I'm losing altitude a bit and I'm gaining more oxygen. So, um, what's the vegetation like up there? There's like nothing to build anchors out of. Uh, there's, there are, well, rocks. there's true, um, natural anchors being rocks in the stream at that point. I think really most of the good canyons, um, at the higher tundra and alpine space, there are a handful of canyons and there are some rappels. It's kind of neat to be up above tree line and be able to really see. Because at that point, some of these approaches actually give you a, a view into the next couple of ranges over. The San Juans is this intricate collection of ridges of mountains. And some of those approaches that I would never have done otherwise just from a hike, they're stunning and worthwhile uh, once you've once you've gotten up there. Um, and that high alpine tundra is you know, something that you want to be careful of, staying on existing trails, not trampling things. It takes it a long time to regrow. But a lot of the good rock bands happen lower and below tree line. So that's a bit more than what most people are used to. Okay. Awesome. With me, it's probably hard enough to hike up to base level. <laughs> I wouldn't need to go that extra, extra little bit. But <laughs> yeah, I like I like the Grand Canyoneering conversation about, you know, pick something that is a good representative, you know, intermediate type canyon first. And then when you get to know the area, build from there. Um, it's, you know, there's, there is something to altitude. Um, there's also, I mean, from, I know you ask safety questions, but helicopters don't go to every altitude easily and not every helicopter can always get to the altitudes that you think you want to be rescued from. So I know that about 11,000 feet, um, from a search and rescue standpoint, it's not, it becomes more complicated to get a rescue at that, at that elevation. 
So that's a consideration that I don't think a lot of people, it's mentioned in the book, but it's, it's in, it's in a smaller portion of text that people might not see, but it's probably worth calling out here that rescues are hard. This is, I think mountain towns in Colorado give you this false sense of security that you're close to civilization, but you're pretty, it's, it's hard to get a good rescue from high elevation and get a whole team of people up to rescue you. Even if, you know, not every trail, not every canyon starts with a good trail. Some of these are off trail hiking. At least Colorado benefits from having vegetation that can be easy to move through. You're more worried about being cliffed out than you are with like briar patches and, you know, the brambles of the Northwest. Um, but it still is very difficult for a search and rescue team to get up there with all of the equipment that they would need to actually get somebody and extract them if there was an issue. That's definitely worth noting because sometimes if you've got internal bleeding or head injury, time matters <laughs> for sure. Um, what about the Pocosa Springs area? What are your favorite canyons in that area? Yeah, Upper Wolf Creek was done. That was one of the first ones that Charlie had found um, and was descended in the early 2000s. Um, that, I think, remains one of the, the better finds in the area that has been well, well bolted and put together. Um, there's a great sequence in the West Fork of the San Juan at the end that is this awesome, awesome cavern with a handful of rappels. It's just a lot longer to get out there, about a five mile trail. A lot of these canyons that are north of Pagosa Springs have actually really easy, nice flat approaches. They're just longer based on where the roads are. So there's five miles to get to the bottom of the West Fork of the San Juan. Um, it's close to a little river hot springs, which is fun. Um, but if you're, if you're not camping out there, that means you're automatically in for like a 12 or 13 mile day. Um, there's a couple others that are in that spot as well. That are some pretty great waterfalls that people, um, put on their list, drive to and hike to. It's always kind of fun to drop in from the top when you've got a bunch of people who are only there to view it from the bottom and have no idea that there's more, more interesting things above it. That sounds awesome. Very cool. How about the Durango area? Um, there's, there's actually looking at the geology maps, the, the Animus river runs from Silverton and it runs down into Durango. There's a section that we, it's also harder to get to. You can do a long, long car shuttle to set yourself up on top, but grasshopper tank and Canyon Creek are three canyons that are east of the highway 550 that runs between Durango and Uray. They're in uh, an older rock layer. Um, they have some great sequences of repels. This kind of goes into that spot of you, you get inspired to explore some of these places and then convince people that this is going to be great and it might go a little faster than planned. And sometimes these days have been longer than planned. Grasshopper, we started at 7.30 in the morning and then we got back to the other car shuttle vehicle at 3 a.m. I think that's the longest that um, never overnighted, never had any issues in any of his explorations, but there have been some for sure after dark returns that have thrashed us for the next day, just you know, moving that, moving that long, moving that far, carrying extra rope. So that transitions well into my next question about any epic first descent stories. Yeah, I mean, so I mentioned Grasshopper um, as a canyon that I think would be great to go back to. We saw the latter half of those waterfalls in the dark. I'd like to go back and see them and actually get some good photos. Um, there's a whole there's a whole drainage to the east of Uray. Uray is this bustling town. It has a long mining history. But if you just go up one ridge and drop into the next one, this is the Cow Creek uh, Basin. And Cow Creek itself is the return for a whole bunch of the canyons that are on the east side of that water um, drainage. And I've slowly over years gone back and progressively done one more and done one more until now. I've got all six um, on that side and those are in the book. They're long days. The return is always Cow Creek. There are no trails. Um, it is a mile an hour. I have tried to improve that. It has never changed. And the last canyon all the way out there is Middle Canyon, which didn't have good satellite imagery looked to be as like harrowing, like the pictures that you're trying to like assess before you get out there, looked to be this harrowing, really big aquatic rappel. It's actually a low angle, 330 foot rappel, lowish angle. That's gorgeous, but it's a super high um, traverse or trail at 12,500 feet. And it's five miles in Cow Creek returning. So some of those days have just been big days. Um, 
I think it's interesting to think about motivations on some of these items because I've, you know, once you've done two or three in a series, you kind of, you might need to wait for the next year to like re rebuild your motivation bucket, but you're kind of curious. It's, it's, it remains this undone thing. And so you try and wrangle the people who also think that that also could be interesting and you give them all the information and, and pull together a team for the day. And then everybody's always tired at the far end, but it is neat to be able to, to see that those spots for the first time. I think that you've had a lot of explorers on your program and it's been great for me to listen to other people who are in different parts of the US or different parts of the world have that same internal bit that just makes you curious about what's out there. And, and now if you don't want to do that huge, massive hike to get up there, which by the way, is a really pretty basin, it's for sure worthwhile if you're up for it or that super long return, which I also, I don't know what I think about that long return. I'd rather not maybe do it anytime soon, but maybe I'll do it again someday. You can at least now look at the photo and see the actual picture of the waterfall and see what's there. So that's a neat thing about being able to put everything into one book. You can armchair flip through and see what are what's in the mountain ranges that you might not otherwise be able to see yeah very true very true some people that are physically unable to get to those places mm -hmm. are also able to see them too that's really neat yeah or i mean i've traveled to other places and i always try and do the best canyons in those places it's nice to have a reference to be able to assess what it is you want to spend your time on if you if, you're, if your time is limited and you're making a special trip right yeah if you only have a couple days in that area for sure so if you just had a day or two in Uray, what would you do? Hmm. Um, in Uray, um, I'd probably do one, one or two of the classics. Um, Bear Creek is good. I haven't been in there for a bit. Um, Bear, Oak, Cascade, Corbett uh, are kind of, and Weehawken, I would say, are probably, oh, and also the Upper Uncompagre are probably all like the classic super near canyons that are on national forest land that are the ones that are mostly done. Um, I haven't been in Cascade or Bear for a little bit of time, and I probably would prioritize those just because I've been off in different parts of the San Juans and different parts of the state. There's a lot. I mean, I should probably mention it's not just the San Juan Mountains. The next mountain range to the north, um, which is up and over the Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park is the West Elks. And those are, that's your Aspen, Marble, and Crested Butte mountain range. Um, and there's a handful of canyons that are in Marble that are also in the book. Um, and I just completed, you know, getting out to a new one in the Rhone Plateau, which is north of I-70 up by the town of Rifle. And, you know, it's been neat to still have opportunities to go check out some things. Although the, the canyons in Uray and the San Juans have a good sequence of once you have earned it and you've gotten to your, your top of the canyon, there's a nice sequence of rappel after rappel after rappel. You're in, you're committed. A lot of the other things that we've been kind of looking at have been a little bit more like really big rappels. Um, but, you know, the canyon portion is not that like commitment space. Gotcha. That's like the Gunnison area in those, that area? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sorry, north of, north of, okay. um, yeah, Marble is um, between Montrose and Glenwood Springs. Okay. It's a small little town. There's a handful of canyons that are in that area, though. It's, It's been, you know, neat to explore all of these tiny Colorado mountain towns with a, through a sport, right? You can change the lens that you explore different places. I know kayakers have a map across Colorado and climbers have a map across Colorado that pull out different spots. And now we have this canyoning map um of this aquatic descending that um pull out our hot spots and our highlights yeah for sure awesome such a big playground it is well i mean you know, awesome. between where i live in denver and where you live on the western side of the colorado plateau there's a lot of things to do in all of these spaces plus new mexico and arizona i mean it's it's nice to have some uh you know endless weekend opportunities for many many years for sure. Definitely. I think it was interesting that I finally talked to Charlie years later, found out that that pamphlet that connected me at Neptune Mountaineering to my very first canyon in 2004 was actually placed there by Charlie. And he remembered it, you know, years and many years later. So there's just kind of like full circle element of like, I guess it was, you know, my path to eventually circle back here and at least probably get exposed to it or, um, you know, spend time here.
Anything you want to add about safety in the area? I do. Um, it had taken me several years uh, before I got my wilderness first responder. It's an 80 hour course. I know it's a huge time commitment. It was always something that I had never prioritized. Um, you know, it's time and it's money. And it's, it's been, I think, a reason why if anybody hasn't done it, that's probably been the reason because you don't want to either spend your vacation time doing it or if you have a job where you have lots of time, the money seems to be a, um, you know, had been a reason. And this is like a 20s conversation that I was having with myself wanting to do it. So I did that during that time off that I had. And I think that that actually has been really, really helpful. And I've restarted for, you know, as for many, for the years that followed, but it's um, both having a better medical sense. It's probably appropriate to what we do in the wilderness is really advantageous. If something were to go wrong, it gives you a toolbox to reference and kind of keeps your head on your shoulders a little bit more. You already have some answers. You don't have to invent those on the fly. And the same thing can be said for all the technical skills that we work on. Having ascenders on your harness, being able to quickly transition from descent to ascent, to understand that like you shouldn't use a, you know, a Petzl Basic, you know, a camming type device in heavy water flow because then you can get yourself more stuck or more in more issue. There's a lot of techniques that are constantly evolving. Um, I feel like those are sort of the things that um, we probably should all continue continue to work on continue to practice on Cheryl's I know you do some some not practices and you have not nights um, yes. <laughs> those sort of things of getting together with the people you actually practice with and talk this stuff through um, I know of accident stories that uh, where anchors by committee everybody has an equal voice that if they don't like the anchor that it's totally okay and you create an environment for them to be able to speak up and and assess it if it's something they don't know. I mean, there's a lot of new techniques. I know when the fiddlestick first came out, everybody was a little dubious of like, how is this set up? Is it set up right? I haven't seen this before. But the more that we can keep ourselves up to date and current and all have the same knowledge and skill set, then you you can go up and assess an anchor and ensure it's safe and know what knots are being used. Um, I think there's a lot of the accidents that I've read about that can kind of trace themselves back to one of those. And also another thing in the expense category, but I would advocate is bringing some sort of a, a PLB or a satellite messenger. Um, both have pros and cons. I dedicated th three pages in the front of the book to the differences, um, but some mechanism like in Europe and a lot of other parts of the world, you can rely on a cell phone. I, I thought it was pretty wild. And you know, if you're only gonna be in for two hours in a European Canyon, it had been commonplace at the time when I was over there for someone to grab one of those big canyon kegs and throw in like a, a fresh baguette and some cheese and their cell phone and maybe some first aid tape. And the kit that I carry in the backcountry is is more robust. I, I mean, I, I yeah, carry more weight as a result of it, but I do have a mechanism to be able to call out when my cell phone doesn't work, which is a whole lot more of our places that we have. For sure. They don't always work in the slot canyons, but once you do get the signal, they definitely can start rescue faster. Yeah, it's also, I mean, pre-trip okay. emails, if you can, mm -hmm. especially, I mean, utilize RopeWiki, download the GPS track for the canyons you're planning on doing, put all of that in an email message that contains the plan, and then make sure that your emergency call out, each one of these systems has to have an emergency call out. So as you hit the button, then it sends the signal and it might GPS bounce all over the place if it eventually gets through. But if you could, if the organizations that are monitoring all of this get the signal, it can call your emergency contact, and that person has been CC'd on your email message for your week or your weekend plans, then they can forward that message to the search and rescue personnel, and they have all of your trip itinerary plans right there, and that should help I, them identify where you're at a lot faster. I really like that you point that out there because I would have like my mom as my emergency contact, but I rarely tell her my canyoneering plans. My mom so is my emergency contact. Her and I would be like, I don't know where she's at. Yep. Or and so I just, I will CC her or BCC her on the email that goes out on the trip. And then yeah. she at least knows, you know, and I've pre-built, I, I really am an advocate of CalTOPO. There's a lot of powerful things you can do from a GPS and a tracking standpoint and layers. Um, I used it a lot in the development of the book. Um, but I'll, if, especially if it's an exploration, I'll pre-do the map in the same way that you get information back from you know the beta that's already online and so at least that also gives search and rescue an idea of like the planned approach the angle you were going to take the hillside you were going to walk up and then 
where you actually might be. Very great idea. Not that we want search and rescue to be involved in our day, but if they have to be, we need to make it easy for them. Well, that's a that's a such a tricky space. I mean, if once you have one of these devices, everybody at search and rescue has said we would rather be called out and be turned away because it turned out to be okay than have someone deliberate for a couple of hours and then the situation worsens and those could have been a couple of mobilizing hours that we could have used to get there and maybe we could have saved somebody. Um, so mm-hmm. there is there is that, there's always a decision point on whether or not you hit the button, but um, it's nice to know that that was a search and rescue um, perspective on it from multiple search and rescue teams. Yeah. I have a search and rescue uh, podcast in the works, so. That's great. Getting, I think trying to get everybody scheduled together so we can discuss what yeah. not to do to get them with us. <laughs> yeah, sure. there's an annual uh, Uray Festival that's been going on since about 2009. Skipped last year, but then it's been back on for this year, and that's been a strong uh, relationship with Uray Search and Rescue. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's been kind of interesting as we've moved into all of these other areas of the San Juans or different places, different mountainous regions. And I've reached out to the Pagosa Search and Rescue, Durango Search and Rescue, Silverton Search and Rescue, Telluride Search and Rescue in San Miguel County, and at least informed them that, um, you know, hey, these activities are in your backyard. You know, the book is guiding people towards doing some of these things. If anybody's in one of these areas, this is at least information you should know about. So it's nice that all of that is you know, warmly received. For sure. I bet they definitely appreciate that. Well, canyoneering makes me really hungry. What's your favorite in Kenyan snack? If I have a chance to prep before a trip, I will get apples and I'll pre-make like small chicken cheese burritos. And that's kind of my, you know, I mentioned Corbett's hike. So I'll use that as an example, but all the others are the same. That 8,500 foot to 10,000 foot hike up the day that begins your adventure. At the top of the canyon, while I'm putting on my wetsuit, I will... Um, try and down the uh, small burrito. Um, I have cliff bars, other things that are waterproof, you know, Lara bars, handful of things, keeping up the variety I think is good, but those are usually kind of the in-canyon snacks. But I really like apples, especially for the desert. Apples and pears, I read something at one point that those sort of fruits have a high water content and they slowly digest. So if you're worried about hydrating, that's a really good item to have at the front end of your day because it will slowly hydrate you throughout your day. Like watermelon has a higher water content and you you move through it faster, more like if you just drank water. But apples, pears, those sort of like harder fruits um, have a good way to stay hydrated, especially if you're at altitude. And we all know water helps at altitude. And those are, have just become kind of more of a mainstay. Very nice. I also enjoy apples. Yeah. One of my faves. <laughs> yeah. The other trick that I've done in the past, if I've, if I'm short on time or if I've traveled to a different part of the U.S. and you have to do a grocery store trip before your canyons, bagels, lunch meat, cheese, and then instead of lettuce, because lettuce usually wilts, green peppers. That's a nice little like sharp, hmm. you know, something a little crunch. To bite into. Doesn't go soggy. Yeah, and I find that the carbs mm-hmm. in a bagel is actually a really really good thing on a high energy output day. And we don't get squished as easy as bread does. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Oh, and what's your favorite after Canyon beverage? Uh, for so many years, Colorado is like the world of craft breweries, or at least was an epicenter of it. I feel like that's a thing everywhere, but it usually that and guacamole and some salty blue corn tortilla chips are usually kind of a good way to like reboot at the end of the day and get some calories back in. Oh, for sure. I love the blue tortilla chips. Good call. <laughs> um, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? I would like to go back to New Zealand and Australia. The first time I went down there and had a chance to be in those mountains, um, I thought I'm definitely going to come back here much more often. And it's surprising how the years go by. And now, of course, you know, there's lockdowns and international travel at the moment. But I do foresee that to be a return destination. Um, I'm super curious what's up in British Columbia. But I know that that team and the folks in the Pacific Northwest have been exploring a bunch of things. But I suspect there's some stuff that's like just inaccessible. They, you know, the helicopter drop-offs are far, far in the backcountry. Um, that's probably wild. It goes back to that statement of there are canyons everywhere and there's good rock in a lot of places. Um, I've enjoyed my trips to the southern portion that's more road accessible, but I bet you there's some stuff tucked in their wilderness. Yeah, for sure. 
like how many days do you want to be back there right um, <laughs> and, and there's so many i mean every trip i've taken to europe and done different canyons on every trip mm -hmm. there are so many more they've done such a good job of you know exploring equipping and providing information for all of their canyons that i suspect i could do a trip to europe for the rest of my life and still not exhaust everything that's there that would be interesting to get into there's those those canyons of being just kind of like in just rock and water with bolts is a fun it's a fun opportunity to build those skills work on those things and just be in that different environment we have some of those in the us and some of those in the san juans but there's always a little bit more erosion and it's not quite the same thing of like jump after jump. Gotcha. That does sound awesome. I see the Monroys. They do a lot of international travel and they, I should try to get them on. Anyway. <laughs> um, where can people find you and your book? Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I have an Instagram account. It's out there. I'm available. I'm, I, people could find me on Facebook and shoot me a message. Um, the there is a colorado and it was called colorado canyoneering facebook page that has about a thousand people on it now i didn't start it but um i am a member there so that's a way that people could connect with me probably the easiest one and kind of see the latest information that's a good spot if you're going to come to the area to ask people questions about conditions and otherwise um, the book is available on downtown main street in uray in hard copy form um, on the shelf at uray mountain sports um, they have been um, keeping that well stocked since it came out. I know Tom carries it at Canyoneering USA. Um, the on-rope on Canyoneering in Arizona carries it. Uh, Norhex.net, they were one of the advertisers in the book that make custom gear in the Pacific Northwest, um, have some copies available on their website. Um, Canyon Zone and canyonstore.be or .eu, both have it in Europe, although more limited quantities. If you're gonna get it in the US, save yourself extra shipping costs. It's a, it's a two pound book in order from somebody in our country. Um, people can also reach out to me if you want me to send a book. I sent out a handful across the world when this first came out through people who happen to know me already. So I'm happy to work out an arrangement there. Anything else you wanna add before we say goodbye? Um, it's been, a uh, it's been great to chat with you, but the San Juan Mountains are a unique location and probably hadn't gotten the attention for you know a good number of years because they're a long ways away from things. It's a to Durango from Denver is seven hours. It's a long ways from Phoenix, um, Salt Lake, and Albuquerque are kind of the main hubs of populations, and the sport has also grown a lot more in the last twenty years. So those big long weekends of doing all of these explorations always had seven hour drives on average each way from denver to get back to work on monday so there's a lot of energy that goes into each of the explorations and then there was a whole lot of ca caffeine and coffee that got us home and got us there in the first place and it was um you know very missionized to like get yourself excited to do this weekend after weekend but um the season is the seasons feels longer these days um june to august um actually june to september and sometimes in october but you start to you start to play around a little bit more with um, the first freeze. So snow melt to first freeze in the mountains. Pay attention to the weather if you're on the edges of the season. Reach out through the Facebook community. People seem to be active enough on um, condition reports. That's another thing we didn't talk about earlier is um, afternoon thunderstorms. You no, know, the months. Yeah, so uh, yeah, monsoon activity. Um, all flows through Tucson, Arizona. That's where they where monsoon season starts. And then someone described it to me as um, it's like a fire hose that no one's holding onto, and the weather patterns will swing it sometimes as far east as Denver and as far west as Las Vegas or Reno. Um, and so if one side's getting it, the other side might not in terms of more moisture in the atmosphere. Um, it seems to it was bulletproof for a period of time. I think we're a little less bulletproof with the climate today that afternoon monsoonal storms could deposit a whole lot of those flash flood type events. And that is something to watch out for. You know, it, if you're not a morning person, I'm sorry, the advice is get up early and beat the sun um, because some of those hikes can be pretty exposed. You're in pine trees and you're in some awesome aspen groves, but there's also some parts of those trails that are fully exposed to the early rising eastern sun um, but then you also want to be out of the canyon and out of the commitment space if there's any sort of chance of precipitation in the forecast 
What time do they typically roll in? Um, I would I would like to say that it, you could set your clock to 4 p.m., but that is not the case. I have in certain years been out there and it's been noon that it's been rumbly and, and angry in the skies. You can kind of see things build up. Um, so, you know, keep an eye on the weather. The weather changes a lot. It's a it's a it's a mountain range that is maybe more difficult to predict, but they can at least predict the water moisture that should be happening. Yeah. I think as canyoneers in general, we all tend to focus more on weather than normal people. Yeah, we're all become amateur geologists and weather weather forecasters. I mean, not sure. forecasters, but at least we're like very much focused on what the forecast should be yeah. for the day. I'm like, I have to check all three different weather apps just to make sure nothing's happening. Yep. I never yeah. all agree. So if you just take an average, yep. you're kind of yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's always, it's probably worth mentioning. We get excited about this. I know I've, I've heard you mention this previously as well. You get pretty, you, you, you get motivated and it's a big deal to do one of these weekends. You, you rally people. Everybody's busy. They do things the next weekend. They've done things the last weekend. This is your weekend. This is your weekend for the grand plan. And it's potentially a big drive and a big destination and trying to make it all happen. And, and yet the, the weather's not conducive. The canyon will still be there. It's, um, it's, you know, let's, try and be smart about all of these things. Let's try and look at anchors the best that we can. Let's set good anchors, set good examples for everybody else, know good practices, um, get everybody involved so everybody knows what's happening and how, like, what anchors are being tied. That was something that came up once um, talking to a group that had an accident. It's, um, you know, you want to be in a spot where you've at least done all, you've done all your pre-work appropriately to get out, to get to where you, you know, want to be in case something does go wrong. And you can, you know, not at least focus on things that you knew you should have done on the front end. Um, right. The other thing that I think maybe two items that I've seen that might just be good pieces of advice from a safety standpoint, we get excited also at the trailhead and being able to make sure that everybody has a good headlamp with good working batteries and and all of their gear right have have your helmet and your harness let's not hike to the top and, and forget something but let's have that, a little bit of a contingency plan like what happens if like just can everybody spend the night miserably but survival but surviving can does everybody have a little bit of extra food um and you know of course you're trying to hopefully go up partners that have good fitness that can make the day happen and have some well and then we'll have some reserves in the tank on the far end they're not using their their reserves just to get through the day, the planned adventure. Um, yeah, a lot of those things of like good group dynamics. I feel like that pre-trip discussion of like everybody has a headlamp and a first aid kit, who has the first aid kit, those sort of things always, like it, it, it's quick to forget about that and just get going on the trail. For and sure. The other piece is, you know, I, I think that we, if you're in a bolted environment where you're constantly into and out of anchors and you're kind of in hanging belay stances, you can be um, more apt to have your safety tether into the anchor and and then rig, you know, multi, multi-pitch sort of stuff. But doing that solid weight transfer, confirming that your block, whether it's a triple hitch or a um, eight munter overhand, um, which is um, a good releasable, and that might be a good topic for a future space and all the different ways we can manage ropes. Um, yeah. But those are, that they're set appropriately by actually testing it. Like leave your safety in, get rigged up on your on your critter device, which is actually the one that I've been using most, and and cinch up on your critter and then put a foot on the wall if, it, if you can't just use your body weight and make sure that that block is set well. A lot of other issues that have come up, you could probably trace back to that as well. Yep, definitely. And set yeah. proper blocks, right? Like a lot of times people will set a figure eight contingency block where you can't lower someone. It's like at the end of the rope or whatever, where if they just set that a little differently, that's where classes come in. I yeah, feel like. it's, um, I mean, I <laughs> Some knowledge. interesting to be in the guidebook author space where, you know, <laughs> the book talks so much about all of this relevant information and yet it's not a how-to guide. Right. Yeah. You, you can't. And it's intentionally it mentions that a handful of times that like you can't really just get this book and then learn to do what you're doing on your own. And you probably could if you have crossover sports and otherwise. But that's really no um, no replacement for good apprenticing with people who you know are know what's going on. Good instruction. There's a lot of mm -hmm. different changing instruction that's happened. Um, 
and different sources to go get, go after that information. Um, better than maybe asking on a Facebook forum just for your own, from an educational standpoint, but that's also a good way to like vet some ideas and have some bigger discussions. It's been, this is such a homegrown sport in the US. We've borrowed a tremendous amount from France and Europe and other international technical organizations, but we've also had all these like crazy discussions about what works better for us. And um, yeah, I think that understanding, you know, what's out there and then spending time with people that can help level up where you're at with things is, it's, it's a social sport and I've always enjoyed having big groups of people and teaching and sharing and we can all be safer together if we're all adopting these sort of approaches. Agreed 100%. Yeah, it can be fun. It can be safe. It can be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, but, it's a gravity sport. There's, there's, we have high consequences if things don't go right. For sure. Yeah. What about but, you? What's your what's on your hit list for your Ray in the San Juans? So I wasn't able to do Corbett because of a headache. So I hiked up to almost the top. I could see the 200 foot waterfall in there and like the pretty narrows down below and whatever. Um, so that one's definitely on my list. But I've done Oak, I've done Bear. Upper Uncapagre is on my list. Pretty much, yeah, I would do yeah. anything. If you're... Um, if you're up for longer hikes, um, there are a handful of others that are also at lower elevation that would be, you know, exciting to go after. There's some things around Silverton. Ice Lake Creek is really good. It's a little bit lower elevation. South Fork Mineral is a bit more aquatic, and that actually gives us a couple of the jumps still in that cutler layer. And the lower portion of that, if the water level is down a bit more, is super wild and, like, gives some pretty big, like, higher aquatic waterfalls because that whole... Um, River Basin is, is has more a higher CFS that runs through it. Um, Lime Creek, this is a kayaker's route, so the second gorge of Lime Creek. There's four rappels in there, and it's a neat little environment. It's just it's a bit of a longer hike as an approach, and then you have to repeat a lot of that when you when you exit. But there's four drops, and it's a neat it's a neat little you know limestone chasm, and is well equipped as well. So that's kind of the advantage of you know flip through the book, and yeah. if you're if you want to gain some elevation or some altitude um, experience for your body to get used to. You don't have to go to 10,000 feet to get it. You can go play and haul packs and carry wetsuits wet and dry to some of these things that don't quite go to the same elevation. Yeah. Good to know. We were in okay. Pagosa Springs this summer and I was wondering, like, we should have brought your book just to check out kind of what was in that area. But we're just driving through. <laughs> yeah, well, you can always check RopeWiki. I mean, you have it available yeah. from the web too. Because, um, and yeah. I've really liked their map setup that's there for being able to really like zoom into a region and and see kind of, you know, what what's around and how it relates to the other the other canyons that are in that area. So if yeah. you're ever caught, I did that at one point where we switched gears and did Goblin Valley out of Utah and drove back into mm -hmm. Hanksville, gathered quick information on what I was trying to. You know, remember was out there and then went back and and did that on the way home in San Rafael as well. So yeah, it's nice. kind of a neat thing. I don't really want to be that connected and have that much connectivity, but um, it becomes really advantageous when you can pull up information and change change plans you didn't think about, you know, mid-trip. Right, for sure. Yeah, I think that's what happened to us because we had to go a different route because of road closure. So then we ended up being in that area, but beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful yeah. country. <laughs> we'll be back. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. If there's anything else you want to add. No, I think I've got it. Good. Thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity to tell more people about it. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a favorite spot. So I um, hope more people have a chance to get there and also experience it and uh, reach out if you do. Right. Awesome. Canyons are calling. We should probably go. Sounds good. Okay, that concludes my conversation with Ira Lewis. I hope you enjoyed the show. I am looking forward to getting back up to you, Ray, as soon as I can. Those canyons are stunning. Also checking out some near Pocosa Springs in Durango, I think. Lower elevations sound intriguing to me. I will have a link to where you can purchase Ira's book as well as his favorite canyon snack on the website, thecanyonsarecalling.com. I also um, have partnered with Teespring, so you can go there to get some quality clothing for yourself. They ship it directly to you, so you can pick out whatever colors, whatever styles, whatever sizes you want. 
Um, that is the dash canyons dash r dash calling dot creator dash spring dot com. I'm gonna have a link to that in the show notes as well as on my website in the store. You can also purchase the pub glasses and some stickers there to support the show. This is totally listener supported. I don't have sponsors for this show at all. So if you would like to support the show in any way, you can donate there. You can just shop through the affiliate link. Or I also have um, partnered with Patreon. And if you do my top tier on the Patreon, I'm going to have a monthly call where we chat um, each month. Everyone that's on the Patreon will chat about um, gear, about canyons, about cool experiences. I'm going to have some guests on once in a while. And so um, that will be for the top tier people. I don't really know how to do like bonus episodes and early episodes because I just kind of put out the content as I get it. So I felt like that was a way to um, just give a bonus to the top people on my Patreon is just to have this monthly chat where we just all get together and chat canyons for an hour or so. Um, So if you'd like to join that, that's at patreon.com. I have a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, If you're enjoying this beautiful music in the background, shout out to Chris Zollinger, Z the Handpan Man. I have a link to him as well. And the canyons are calling now. I gotta go.